Welcome to Extra Points, the Outsports podcast that explores extra points on lesser-known moments in LGBTQ sports history, with special guests who discuss the larger cultural issues behind each one. I'm your host, Daniel Villarreal, and in this episode, we're marking the recent commemoration of World AIDS Day by examining how HIV changed the sports world and the continued stigma and ignorance that persists among some athletes even today. In the first half of the show, we'll discuss some ways that HIV collided with the sports world. And in the second half, we'll speak with Aaron Butler, Deputy Director of Prevention at the Cascade AIDS Project, about why we don't hear about HIV in sports as much. And then we'll discuss the likelihood of HIV spreading in several hypothetical sports scenarios. But I'm going to start this episode by doing something a little bit different, and that's talking about myself. I'm a recreational wrestler, and once, when I was wrestling another dude, he told me that he'd never want to wrestle an HIV-positive opponent. When I asked him why, he said he worried that a competitor's sweat, their spit, or their bloody nose might possibly expose him to the virus. He said he wouldn't even share a cigarette or a glass of water with an HIV-positive person, and I was kind of shocked. Now, don't get me wrong. Sex education in our country sucks, and even today, nearly 40 years after the start of the epidemic, there's still plenty of ignorance and anti-HIV stigma. A recently released survey by the Merck Pharmaceutical Company found that 28% of HIV-negative millennials in the U.S. avoided hugging, talking to, or even just being friends with someone with HIV for fear of catching the virus. So, being an armchair sex educator, I didn't shame my wrestling buddy for his ignorance. I just reassured him that in nearly a decade of writing about HIV and other sexual health issues, there were no documented cases that I knew of where HIV had been passed on through competitive sports and that it was certainly safe to share a cigarette or drink water with a positive person. But his comment got me thinking, if he thought this, surely countless other people had similar misconceptions and were probably discriminating against HIV-positive people under the fear of protecting themselves. And if it was this bad now, imagine how it must have been when the virus first hit in the early 80s. So I began researching the topic, and I was surprised to find only one book on the topic of HIV in sports, one that was published in 1999, long before PrEP, and widespread knowledge about how undetectability makes it virtually impossible to transmit the virus. So any aspiring writers or historians out there, there's a book proposal for you. Also, these days, there seem to be few experts who focus specifically on HIV in sports. But maybe that's because the professional sports world seemed to handle the issue quite sensibly when Magic Johnson came out as HIV positive back in 1991. The NBA didn't ban him or other athletes with blood-borne diseases like AIDS and hepatitis. Instead, athletic associations universally adopted sanitary procedures for handling open wounds and spilled blood, removing bleeding players from the field, and using gloves for cleanup and treatment. Early on, researchers also ruled out sweat and saliva as agents of transmission, partly because millions of interactions had occurred between HIV-positive people and their family members without any new infections. In 1990, the American medical journal, The Lancet, mentioned a report of a possible transmission between an HIV-positive and an HIV-negative soccer player in 1989. Two months after their collision, the HIV-negative player seroconverted. However, the report, which originated in Italy, remained undocumented because public health officials were unable to establish that the collision actually caused the seroconversion. In 1991, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that schools educate athletes about HIV and how it could spread through sexual activity and needle sharing during use of anabolic steroids. 
They also recommended that athletes shouldn't share personal items, like razors, toothbrushes, and nail clippers that might be contaminated with blood, something that we now know to be virtually unlikely to transmit HIV. But it's important to remember that Magic Johnson wasn't first welcomed back with open arms when he came out as HIV positive. First of all, let me say good, good after late afternoon. Um, because of uh, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. Um, I just want to make clear, first of all, that I do not have the AIDS disease, because I know a lot of you want to know that, but the uh, HIV virus. Um, my wife is fine. She's negative, so no problem with her. Um, I plan on going on, living for a long time, bugging you guys like I've always have. In fact, after sitting out during the 1991-1992 basketball season, he sought to mount a comeback the following year. And four days before the start of the next season, he announced that he'd be retiring for good because of the fear his return was causing some players and team owners. He didn't return to the game until 1996, but by then, he had near-universal acceptance from other players. When asked about the difference between his two comeback attempts, he credited the NBA in educating other players about how HIV is transmitted. By 1995, both the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and the American Academy of Sports Medicine published a joint position statement echoing what other medical professionals had already concluded, that spit and sweat contained a negligible amount of the virus, and that the likelihood of transmission caused by inflected blood splashing into another player's open cuts or eyes was extremely small due to the HIV's fragility outside of the body. In 1997, the International Federation of Sports Medicine came to similar conclusions. Though they suggested caution in the bloodiest sports like boxing, wrestling, and taekwondo, they said that HIV testing of athletes should always remain voluntary, and that doctors were under no obligation to disclose the status of any HIV-positive players. Nevertheless, gay Olympic diver Greg Louganis still caused a stir when he came out as HIV-positive in 1995. If you remember, he suffered an open head wound during the 1992 Olympic Games. Greg did not get his weight far enough over the end of the board. Watch his hips in relation to his heels. Right there, his weight is too far back. Consequently, the dive goes straight up. It does not move away. Greg knows he's close because of the way he comes out with his hands tucked in close. And he knows but he's there, in trouble right there. There, as you see, takes that glancing blow to his head. But he did come immediately out of the pool and was assisted, then went with the doctors into a training room. And they worked on him, and, a, and a, a strong medical staff was there. The best. They did take stitches. They checked him over. The decision has been made. He will continue in the competition. And at the time, people thought it was great that he continued to dive in the competition. But after coming out as HIV positive three years later, many commenters accused him of recklessly exposing people to HIV, even though his blood was cleaned up with gloves and the medical community knew that HIV couldn't survive in water. A New York Times story in 1999 found that only one school district in all of the United States had instituted a policy forbidding HIV-positive players from competing in sports. This was the Poudre School District, and it gained national attention and was considered to be, by experts, completely uninformed, discriminatory, and likely to encourage people not to get tested for the fear of being excluded from sports. The New York Times story said that players that refused to play against teams with HIV-positive competitors effectively forfeited their matches, granting victories to HIV-positive players and their teams. 
banning HIV-positive players during the early 80s and 90s didn't even really make any sense as a prevention strategy because a person could have HIV for a year or longer before it even showed up on HIV blood tests at the time. No state laws required HIV-positive players to declare their status, possibly because it could have run afoul of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But despite the role the sports community played in educating athletes and the general public about HIV, a number of openly gay athletes still died from the disease. There was Jerry Smith, a former Washington Redskins player, who died of HIV on October 15, 1986. Tom Waddell, founder of the Gay Games, who died in July 1987 at age 49. Gay Formula One racer Mike Butler, who died in 1988. Race car driver Tim Richmond, who died in 1989 at the age of 34. Andre Nepola, a gay Czechoslovakian Winter Olympic skater and world champion, who died in 1989 at the age of 38. Gay Canadian skater Robert McCall, who died at age 33 in November 1991. Gay tennis pro Arthur Ashe, who died of AIDS-related pneumonia in 1993 at the age of 49. Gay British figure skater John Curry, died in April 1994. Glenn Burke, the first Major League Baseball player to come out as gay while playing, died at age 42 in May 1995. Gay ice figure skater Robert Wagenhofer died in December 13, 1999 at age 39. It's worth mentioning that a handful of gay HIV-positive athletes also survived, like Greg Louganis. There's also Roy Simmons, the gay NFL player who's still alive today, gay figure skater Rudy Galindo, who was diagnosed in 2000, G. Wallace, the gay Australian trampoline gymnast, who was inspired by Greg Louganis to come out as HIV positive in a letter to the Sydney Star Observer after 2012. It's been a while since a major sports figure came out as HIV positive, barring the recent coming out of Welsh former rugby player Gareth Thomas, who only came out in September 2019 after a tabloid threatened to out him first. But sports continues to educate others about HIV around the world. Both the Olympics and the United Nations AIDS program see sports programs and activities as a way to provide a platform for education, breaking down stigma, providing a place for safe, supportive team environment for those living with HIV, using sports activities as a point of access for confidential testing, counseling, and other health services, and using sports' high media profile, its celebrities, coaches, and spokespeople to promote messages about HIV and serve as role models for attracting funding and support worldwide. Today, you can even see sports events specifically dedicated to raising awareness and fundraising for HIV, including simple AIDS life walks and the more strenuous AIDS life cycle, an annual seven-day, 545-mile bike ride through coastal California. We're going to take a small break, but when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. We hope you'll stay with us. In our next segment, we'll be speaking with Aaron Butler, Deputy Director of Prevention at the Cascade AIDS Project, about why we don't often hear about HIV in sports these days and the likelihood of spreading HIV in several hypothetical sports scenarios. As far as Aaron knows, there have been no documented cases of anyone contracting HIV through sports. And if there had been, he thinks we would have heard about it, specifically because such a story would have been big news and confirmed people's worst fears about the disease. Aaron believes there are athletes with HIV currently playing in high-level professional sports, but that the continued atmosphere of anti-HIV stigma and ignorance about transmission likely keeps them from being publicly out about their status. Here's our conversation, but Aaron wanted to preface their comments by emphasizing that while they're a longtime HIV prevention educator, they're neither a medical doctor nor a healthcare provider. My name's Aaron Butler. I'm the Deputy Director of Prevention at Cascade AIDS Project in Portland, Oregon, and I've been working in HIV 
prevention and care since 2009, so just about ready to hit my 11-year anniversary. I have no idea how it's been that long. Uh, and I've done this work with a variety of communities, youth, adults, uh, LGBTQ folks. So there's no like specific CEUs like accreditation for anyone in HIV knowledge per se. However, anyone working the HIV field is a very narrow one, as you can imagine. So to be able to do HIV testing, you have to go through certain training, which can vary by state. And I've done this in a couple of states, so I've had that experience. But the other reality is over the last like 10, 11 years has been a revolutionary time in HIV treatment and prevention. 10 years ago, there wasn't a medication people could take to prevent HIV. And that is definitely a real thing now. Um, things around like undetectable. So to to be effective in this work and to receive funding and then to be doing good work in the community, you have to be up to date on things, whether it's going to conferences or doing webinars. Because if you get out of date, you essentially it's in a weird way you get out of business, like you're not going to keep doing this work. So a lot of it is making sure that we are getting the most up-to-date, accurate information from the Centers for Disease Control. There's also a variety of other educational resources specific to HIV and AIDS um, called like the Edge Education Training Centers, which um, they have a number of those throughout the country. And personally, I have a master's in social work. So there you go. There's a whole lot of noise. No, that, that was great. That was actually you you completely qualified yourself as someone that yeah. we should that we should take seriously and should listen to right. so so that's awesome yay in my research i found that there were some things written about handling hiv in pro sports kind of around the late 90s and then yeah. all writing on that just kind of seemed to stop in fact i couldn't find like a single expert or online documents from the us uh, in the modern era like the last five or 10 years that specialized on sports and HIV. Why do you think that might be? It's fascinating that, you know, I'm definitely guessing here, but it's in all likelihood, a couple of things happened. So first of all, it took us a, a while to really understand HIV, although we are still trying to understand HIV in, in many ways. In fact, some of the really fascinating things about HIV is that in us trying to learn how to combat HIV, we have learned more about the immune system than we ever knew and has helped lead to treatment in cancer and like other immuno, immunotherapies. It's, it's kind of crazy as you learn about what we didn't know about the immune system before HIV. So understanding really how HIV is transmitted, even though there was definitely a growing understanding in the 80s and early 90s, really truly understanding what that was, as well as, the, quite frankly, the most uh, important fact around that time period you're talking about is there was really no true treatment for HIV until about 96, 97. Um, which was when the first effective antiretroviral therapies came out. And prior to that, the treatments were not super effective and had very difficult side effects. But once antiretroviral treatment came out, it, it changed everything. They called it the Lazarus effect. Like people who were really on the precipice of dying were able to bounce back and 
some of those, many of those folks are still alive today. So I'm, I think there was a time when there was a lot of conversation about it because people were understandably and sometimes not so much uh, afraid uh, of a disease that there was no med there was no way to treat it, no way to slow it down. Um, and the other thing is, the more you understand about HIV, the more you were you realize if you are if you're approaching sports medicine, let's say, and athletics with the mentality of universal precautions, meaning like any kind of medic would be using gloves and being mindful of the exposure to any bodily fluids, not reusing needles between different uh, athletes, which if you were, you have other problems. Um, but but once you understand how HIV is transmitted, the, the any risks around athletics would really be the same approach you use for any other communicable disease. And honestly, the reality is there are a number of other communicable or infectious diseases that I would be far more concerned about in the course of athletics than I would be as far as like HIV would be so low, like something like hepatitis C, which it's something that can like live on the surface for 21 hours. And I also, part of me just wonders if some of that reason is a lot of the trajectory around feelings and reactions around HIV and I would say panic, it feels like a lot of that has also been in line with a change in mentality and feelings around LGBTQ folks. You actually raise a really good point that I hadn't even considered that some of the fear of HIV might not have actually been about the virus itself, but might have been about the way that it seemed as foreign and as unknown as uh, gay, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people were to others uh, at the point that it reared its head. I mean, it, what is hard looking back is that HIV never needed to necessarily become quite as widespread as it did. I mean, I don't know if we, you know, it's it's a guessing game because it really was a, a different kind of virus than we had dealt with before. But the reality is it affected people that our country and culture really didn't value. They they called it back in the day the four H's, which is homosexuals, Haitians, heroin users, and hemophiliacs. Like, let's just list the people that America really didn't prioritize. Um, and in many ways, one could argue, don't to this day. Like, you see the trajectory of the epidemic over time, and it's a it's a really fantastic commentary on where we are failing as a country and as a culture. And, who we're supporting, so. Okay, so we know that HIV, it doesn't live for a long time outside of the body, and that it's primarily transmitted through sex and, and needle sharing. But the CDC website says that biting and spitting and flying saliva all have a, quote, negligible risk of spreading HIV. Does this mean that it's possible to spread HIV through these routes, and that maybe people should be worried about if someone spits on them or if some random person bites them or should people worry about this i would say no i have 100 percent confidence it is like the lowest of the low of anything i'd be concerned about and the reason of that is five different things have to happen for somebody to even possibly be exposed to hiv like you said once hiv is out of the body it's like i joke it's like the wicked witch of the west like it it just melts in instantly Inside the body, it can be 
insanely smart, which is why we have yet to fully cure it, really. But outside the body, it is amazingly weak. So that's why, like, five things have to happen. One is you've got to have someone who can get HIV, so someone who's HIV negative. One is someone who's HIV positive who can transmit it. The third is you've got to have a body fluid, which is blood, essentially vaginal fluid, semen, uh, or breast milk. People sometimes also add in like anal fluid. Then you have to have an activity to transmit those things and you have to have an entry point. So when it comes to something like saliva, I'm, I'm assuming the reason the CDC says negligible is because technically there is some very trace amounts of HIV in saliva, but the data has consistently shown that it takes anywhere from like a gallon to multiple gallons of saliva that you'd have to consume before you would ever be at risk for just being exposed to HIV. If someone spits on you and it's like on your arm and you don't have a cut, it's zero, there is zero chance of you getting HIV unless you have a gaping wound that's highly unlikely. And even then there are things that makes that really difficult. Well, let's do a lightning round of sorts. So as I explained in the first half, you know, the reason I wanted to tackle this topic was with you was because I had met another wrestler who was worried about wrestling an HIV positive person for fear of, of somehow getting the virus transmitted to him. And so I wanted to go down a couple of different scenarios where you could sort of tell us why this would or would not be an issue. And and, and some of these you may have already kind of alluded to in some of your previous answers, but are you willing to play with me? Oh yeah, let's do it. In all of these, I think people are assuming that the their competitor isn't undetectable. So Which I, I love that you say that because I would say that is another like quote unquote like new new from like back in the day is all of these things, if the person who is the HIV positive person has an undetectable viral load, which is very common if someone's taking medication on a regular basis, it means that they cannot tra- transmit HIV. So it's not even possible. The only time that someone who is on an HIV treatment that they might be detectable would be if maybe that medication wasn't working anymore and they didn't know it. They test people pretty frequently, so that is it's unlikely. But even if, let's say, that did happen, they get tested frequently enough that it would we would be saying it's maybe it's not undetectable, but it's like a, just one niche above it. Like it's such a tiny amount. So just because someone has HIV, it, you, the virus, it, you know, it multiplies in the body, but the HIV medication pretty much inhibits that ability. So uh, number one, if an athlete or of any sort were to suffer a serious injury on the field where lots of blood poured out of, say, a compound fracture, which is where the bone kind of goes through the skin, would the blood on the ground or the blood spraying in the air possibly transmit HIV to... Uh, extraordinarily highly unlikely personally uh well one if it's spraying on the ground it does not it has to get in contact with someone who's hiv negative and then that person has to have some opening available for that blood to land on so if we want to be the devil's advocate and say like yes i'm a person i jumped in there i don't have gloves on i'm saving this person's leg or life or all the amazing um and my hands go right in there, and I had a paper cut. Like so, there, there, there is a possibility, and like the possibility that someone who is exposed to HIV actually gets HIV 
we actually don't know what the rate is of people who are exposed to actually then end up with HIV because that would be an extraordinarily um, of like let's expose these people to HIV and see how many people. Um, but what we do know is there are a number of people who are exposed to HIV who don't get HIV because once HIV gets in your body, it has to find a home, for lack of a better term, and it can it can die before it does that. It has to find a particular cell where it makes its HIV babies and gets going. So that if you have a cut and it's you know it's super infected that would increase your chances because the thing that HIV is looking for is white blood cells and that is if you've got something super pussy you've got those are closer to the entry point all that being said if you have a pussy open wound and then you're sticking that into somebody's compound fracture uh i'm actually more worried for the person you're sticking your hand in and that moment because you are exposing them so uh let's just say um hiv positive mma fighter sweats on his opponent his opponent has small tears in the skin from itching and mosquito bites uh could this possibly spread hiv uh via the sweat no nope. how about if 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 so the hiv positive detectable fighter got a bloody nose and some of the blood got in his opponent's skin tears or in his opponent's eyes risk of transmission or no i can't say zero but I would say, again, very low. Like the minute HIV gets out of your body, it really loses its oomph. So it's not impossible, but it's still highly unlikely, especially because let's say, obviously like mucous membranes is like one of those potential entry points, but at the same time, our bodies have a lot of defenses for any foreign, anything different coming in. I'm not gonna say impossible, but I know I personally would have zero concerns about that. The person who's most at risk in these scenarios is actually the HIV positive person. How do you mean? Let's say someone's HIV positive and is detectable, or maybe they're currently not, but they have, there was a time when their immune system essentially got wiped out by HIV. It's amazing if you get tested early enough and get treated, you actually will possibly never have a, an AIDS diagnosis or have your um, immune system get wiped out so much that it will just say your immune system gets down to zero. But if it ever gets to zero, it can build back up, but it it can lose kind of its memory. So even if your immune system builds back up, it's still not quite as strong. And if someone, let's say, has HIV and they don't know it, like or depending on how long they've had it, their immune system is compromised. So that HIV positive person is getting spit and sweat and all sorts of stuff from their opponent and that opponent might be they ha might be transmitting other bacteria and germs that for an, an average healthy adult who i'm assuming if you're doing mma fighting you're probably pretty healthy on on a lot of levels but it might you might be exposing someone to a contagion that that their immune system like they didn't even know they had you know something that is a bacteria that could lead to pneumonia or things like that. Like they are the person who's actually more vulnerable in the scenario, which is one of the interesting things around folks like historical fear around HIV. Again, I don't I don't know if someone would be an MMA fighter with who with a compromised immune system would maybe knowingly get in the ring, but if you don't know you, you raise a really, really good point. That's like 
twist. Like, like I've never even yeah. heard anyone say, you know, hey, what about the person who has HIV? Like, you know, what, what where's our concern and consideration and compassion for them? So. I mean, that's pretty much the story of HIV right there. You just said it was, was just World AIDS Day. There it is. So uh, last one, uh, a Mike Tyson-esque HIV positive boxer bites and or spits at his opponent. Risk of HIV transmission or no? Nope. And why is that? That's not going to happen. Right. So if they bite someone and their saliva gets in your Evander Holyfield's ear, he's fine. I mean, okay. he's missing part of his ear. That's messed up. And there's a whole other bacteria that can exist in the human mouth. Ugh. But HIV, nah, not so not in your top 100 worries in that moment. In our later conversation, Aaron mentioned that anyone potentially exposed to HIV could avoid seroconverting by taking post-exposure prophylactics, or PEP, a month-long treatment of antiretroviral medications that must be taken within 72 hours of possible exposure. He also said that he felt that the current precautions taken by the sports world to avoid HIV transmission seem sufficient, and that, considering this, he sees no reason why HIV-positive athletes should be required to disclose their HIV status to sports officials. That's all for this week. I want to thank my guest. The Extra Points opening theme came from binsound.com. I'm Daniel Villarreal, and this has been Extra Points. We hope you'll join us for the next installment. Until then.